Good morning, Fellowship High Crest. Man, good stuff. That was that was that was that was good. But I think we can do better, and I want to explain why. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Trisha and I getting the kids. Yeah. And and so we we are still in that journey of of trying to get the adoption finalized and all that right. And so we were celebrating yesterday, and we went to the the safe kid thing at the zoo. We went to a kid fest in the afternoon. We made our first family visit to Sheridan's, and then I, I said, Trisha, um, you know what? Why don't we just not? You know, you not cook. We not. I not cook. We just we just enjoy this day. And so I said, Hey, I'm gonna pick up some. She said, What are, you, what are we gonna get? I said, Don't worry, I'm gonna get some. And I said, Man, you know what? I would love some good fish. And if you haven't went over to Nanny's. Over on 21st, it'll put you where you need to be. And, um, and so I went over there and I picked up some food and I brought it back and Trisha was doing some stuff while, um, while I put the kids down for food. And, and then they had these biscuits that came with the fish. And I gave my, my youngest, Toby, that we call Chunk Chunk sometimes, I gave him a piece of this biscuit. And when he ate this biscuit, he said, Dad, mmm, mmm. And he just shook his head. I mean, he just had to stop everything. He's like, mm, mm. And I said, God, hopefully one day I can love you like Toby loves that biscuit. <laughs> and, and, and so he just had a moment with him and that biscuit. And, and, and so I'm hoping today that we can embrace God the same way as we go into his word. Amen? Amen. So let me say that. Good morning, Fellowship High Chris. There we go. Love it like that biscuit. If this is your first time visiting, I want to welcome you to, to uh, Highcrest, and I want to let you know that today that there will be page numbers on the screen, and those page numbers with the blue Bibles that are in your chairs. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, then please take that one as our gift to you. If it would be better for you to have Uh, this focus on what it looked like to live, and this week we are focusing on what it looks like to give like there's nothing to lose. Last week we were in the book of Philippians, and this week we are in the book of Second Corinthians. Our passage for today is Second Corinthians nine verse. 6 through 15, and it's found on page 697. And so if you're not there, if you'll go ahead and and turn there, because I want to get ready to to go ahead and get going, because um, we have some distance to cover today. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15 This is what Paul wrote to that church. He said, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others 
as the scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Uh, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from the ministry of giving. Uh, The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. This is God's word. Now, one of the things I struggle with is food addiction. Notice that I didn't say struggled, but struggle. Food is one of the many idols that keeps me reliant on God. My addiction with food touches pretty much every area of my life. I can tell you how stressed I'm feeling based on what I eat for breakfast and what I eat for my pre-bed snack. When I started my journey years ago to become debt-free and I was trying to get all that part of my life together, I figured out that if I could control my food addiction more, then I had a lot more money left each month to pay off debt. You know, I've had some success. Today, I'm 366 pounds lighter than you see me in that picture that's shown. Now, even with all of that success, I still get off track. I still need fresh encouragement. I still need uh, to help developing new plans. I still need suggestions on how to deal with all the after effects of the damage that has been caused by living obese in that way. I still discover new ways in which my addiction has gripped my heart. And then I still get to celebrate sustained performance over time. About every six months or so, I need to go in for a checkup. And why is this important? For some today, this will be an intake in order to help you begin the process of getting healthy. For others, this will be a checkup. For others, it'll be a tune-up. And then for others, this will be a celebration of sustained progress that you've made. As I speak today, please know that I, I do so being sensitive to the many realities that exist in this room. And with that being the case, it's difficult to be as nuanced as I would like to be on this topic in the given time that I have this morning. I'm also aware that it's easy for a pastor to make himself look like a hero on an issue and make everyone else feel bad. And I'm committed to being your pastor, not because of what I want from you, but because of what I want for you. And one of my goals is to teach why sacrificial generosity is one of our community rhythms here at Fellowship Highcrest. I'm starting off by telling you an area in which I struggle uh, because I am not your hero, Jesus is. And although the topic that I discussed today is not one of my primary uh, struggles, any idol that, that takes over the throne of our hearts where only Jesus should sit is a threat to him and a rival to him, its rightful king, and therefore, no matter where we struggle, 
We should all struggle to be obedient. We all need to call one another into uh, obedience and help support one another as the Holy Spirit transforms our heart through his word and in his community. As I teach today, I'll be leaning heavily on the teachings of Pastor Tim Keller on this passage of Scripture. And I don't want to take credit for his work, but his, his, his work in this area has tremendously influenced how I think about this passage. So if this, this topic brings up so much anxiety, then why discuss it? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Because I know um, how many of your problems, how many. How many of your difficulties, how many of your resolve around money? And secondly, we have to talk about it because the Bible talks about it a lot. We would have to constantly avoid large portions of Scripture if we wanted to avoid ever talking about money. It's all throughout the Gospel of Luke. The church has avoided far too many topics for far too long, thinking that it would make people feel more comfortable with us and like us more. And and, it has had this directly opposite effect. We have grown a culture that is very distrustful of organized religion, especially when it comes to money. And, And so we have to talk about it. Matthew 6, 19 through 34 is just one passage of scripture in which the Bible says that no significant spiritual growth can happen in your life if you don't have the right attitude toward money, if you don't trust God with your money. So while often we spend a lot of time while we're discussing this passage of scripture that we're looking at today, discussing verse nine, I feel that if our goal is to get everyone to the place of of having joyful generosity that reflects the grace of Christ, uh, then I need to spend more time at the beginning explaining verse 13 and then working our way back. And as I spend this time on verse 13, I want to answer three questions. One, what happens when we give? Two, why give? And then three, what to give? Paul in 2 Corinthians is raising money for famine relief. There was a famine in Jerusalem. People was hurting bad. And, and so Paul is writing to these churches in Asia Minor in these different areas to raise money for those who were suffering from the famine. Now, the Philippian church that I, that I spoke about last week in, in living like there's nothing to lose, the one that was characterized by being filled with joy. Remember, Paul mentioned the word joy more times in that epistle than in the rest of the whole New Testament that the word is mentioned. Remember, Paul wrote that letter from prison. He wrote it to the social outcast, to the person who was suicidal after um, career failure. But yet they were characterized by joy. That church was more impoverished um, than this Corinthian church, but they surprised everyone in that whole region of the world by how much they gave in order to help those who were suffering through the famine. Now, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in this letter, a church that was that was wealthier. But Paul knew how much they struggled with generosity and having the right attitude toward the things that they had been blessed with. And if you look carefully, you'll see Paul is saying that that when those who follow Christ give, then two things happen. The first is people's physical needs are met. But secondly, sacrificial generosity will also lead to pray people to praise and thank God. 
Now, I know this gets touchy with some people, so I have a, a, a recent example of how this looks. Last weekend, we got to do share fist, right? Amen? You can desire to talk back to me. This is a participatory sport. And in the sheriff's office last weekend, just in this neighborhood, we touched 102 homes. Our, our, our approximately 50,000 of. Now, when we started. We, our teams forgot to get the signs and, and put the signs out. So we were running around and we went back to get the signs all put out. And, and, and the people were like, what, what's so important about the signs? Well, this week we had a number of people drive through not a part of the High Crest campus. And as they drove through the neighborhood, they said, what's the deal with all these signs? Are y'all got, do y'all own all these houses? And we said, no. <laughs> See, the church doesn't have to own everything to be a part of it. But we said, all those homes last weekend. And in almost every case, not every case, in almost every case, the person stopped, praised, and thanked God. So that's the, that is the power of being able to point people back to Christ. Now, I know a lot of Christians who love to serve others and who love to be Others, but I know a lot fewer who feel comfortable in pointing people back as the source of that generosity. And see, that's sad for me because what it says is they're more comfortable with the fact of people giving them glory and thinking the good deed or the resource came from them rather than it came from God. Now, this year we grew numerically faster and larger than we ever thought. And just by the sure numbers of that, the, the amount of giving that came in over this last year uh, was, was greater than what we thought. Give yourself a hand for that. Right now, as a campus, we support about 44 to 45% of our costs. But here's the deal. Imagine if every one of us took the biblical call to sacrificial generosity seriously. Imagine what could happen. If you need an example, let me give you one from biblical times. 20 to 30 years after John, the last living apostle, the one who wrote Revelation, died. There was someone who wrote a letter to a non-Christian trying to explain to them um, Christianity. And I'm going to give you a paraphrase of what this, this ancient letter says. It says, let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they do not share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. 
When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Now, for a moment here, let's look at it. There's four things that this this non-Christian person was writing to this non-Christian to say, this is why Christianity is spreading so fast. This is what Christianity is. And so this is the four things that he was saying. And the first one is this. What you see is the absence of racism. It says their foreign countries were as their native lands and their native lands were as foreign countries. So what that means is Christians were Jews and Africans and Greeks and Romans, but they were Christians first and they were Greeks and Jews and Romans and Africans second. And what Christianity does is it gives higher authority um, to who you are than your cultural tradition. And it gives you a higher loyalty than to your race. And, and, and it says here that Christians could appreciate other people's cultures and they could critique their own. That cuts racism down to the root. So the first one is what made Christianity spread was there was an absence of racism. The second was a high view of life. It says they, they do not killed the unwanted. Back then, it was normal that if you had a baby girl, that, that you, a parent could throw her into the river, and that would be okay. If you had a slave and you wanted to kill it, then that was okay. But it says here, it says that, 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 that Christians saw that every life, no matter um, uh, how unwanted or expendable it was, to be indefinitely precious. And the third one, it, it says they had an unusual view of sex. See, the pagan understanding of sex was that it was an appetite. If you, if you felt hungry, then you ate. If you felt sexy, then you had sex. And, but Christians came along with this absolutely a radical sex ethic. And it says that, that, that sex was God's appointed way of saying to another human being that, that I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. That sex must not be used to communicate anything else to someone. And therefore, sex was a celebration of complete, exclusive and permanent commitment. Then fourth. These early Christians were sacrificially generous. It says that that that, that they shared the table with everyone, that that though poor, they make many rich, that though they have nothing, they're short of everything, that they have plenty of everything, that. They, that they were saying that these early Christians were marked by eye-popping generosity. They were radically, sacrificially generous. People couldn't believe how quick they were to give their money to people. Not only that, they, they changed their attitude toward the, the simpler lifestyles that had a result. It, it, it says that though short of everything, they had plenty of everything. What does that mean? It means that they had to go without in order to be sacrificially generous, but they were happy about it. They didn't feel like they were shorting themselves on anything. How could the Roman Empire with its slavery and its abortion and its corruption and its uh, immorality, how did a world like that turn Christian in just a couple of hundred years? How could Christianity spread through a world like that? It's because no one could match the beautiful lifestyle of these people. Their lifestyles were gorgeous. Their lifestyles were startling, a, a lack of racism, a high regard for human life, a, a, a sex of purity and commitment, and lastly, sacrificial generosity. How do people look at us? Is the gospel spreading through like lightning through Southeast Topeka because people look at uh, the folks who come here to Fellowship Highcrest and, and say the same things about us that they said about Christians and their money back then. 
Do they say when you get near Christians and when you get near the people of Fellowship Higher Crest that, that you just get showered with time and, and with their funds and with their open houses and, and they just give you help in the most practical ways possible? They're so generous. Does anybody say that about us? Do they see you as unusually generous? Are you known for your generosity? If not, then maybe we don't have the same things working in us that they had working them back then. What was operating in them that, 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 that caused them to live this way? What was their motivation? Well, it's right there in verse 13. It says, it, it says for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. Something had happened in them. What is it that is so unique to Christians that leads them to a generosity that other people can't account for? What is it that causes Christians to have a generosity that that makes other people think that they're crazy? The first one is creation and the second one is redemption. The first motivation creation says this, for example, in, in verse 10 of our focal passage, it says this. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. He's saying that the reason that you need to be sacrificially generous is because everything you have is a gift from God anyway. Do you see that? That everything you have is a gift from God anyway. So here's, here's one of the worst mistakes I've ever made in ministry and how it looks when you don't have a heart that says everything is a gift from God. In the church that I, I planted and started before coming here to the Topeka, um, we were a church plant also, and we, uh, we were a lot smaller than we are in this room today. And so we couldn't afford to pay for a meeting space on Sundays. And so we had worked out a deal with another church to allow us to use their space, but since they met on Sunday mornings, we had to meet on Sunday evenings. And that meant every time we met, we had to sit up and tear down everything. You can imagine the toll it takes on you every week doing that. But then there was this church that, w- that had died that was like two doors down from where I lived. Trisha and I lived in a restored crack house. We took a crack house and we had restored it, and that's where we lived, and our church offices were there. And our office house to save money, and, and I prayed all the time, you know what, God, please provide this, this building, man. It would, be so, it would be so great to be able to not have to sit up and tear down every week. It would be so great to be able to meet on Sunday mornings instead of on Sunday evenings. You know, the good games always come on on Sunday evenings during football season. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, and so for, for like three years, we prayed this. And then one day a, a lease sign went up in the yard of the church. So I got, I got my core team together. And we went over and viewed the church. The, the rate of the rent was reasonable, but there was just one problem. The last three or four living members of the church uh, could no longer pay any of the bills. And they wanted us to uh, allow them to keep using one office and one room when they wanted to meet on a regular basis. And so um, now I consider that this was unreasonable since we were going to be paying rent. I wanted it all. I had suffered through many Sundays of suffering and, and setting up and tearing down these Sunday. I, I had waited my time and, and gone without. I, I, I thought the whole place should be mine. I had planned right. We had saved right. I, 
now, now I, I put this in God's hands in prayer until I got to the point of thinking that I had this now. And 24 hours after trying to play hardball with this group of people, another church moved in and took over the space. A Christian has a completely different attitude toward their possessions because they know it's all from God. Second Corinthians four and seven says, what do you have? That's not a gift from God. You may think that you've worked for what you have, but the mind that you have to be able to work it, the gifts that you have, the, the air that you breathe, that where and when you were born, the fact that you were born in the United States or, or where you were born at, we have a couple that were born outside here today, uh, that, that born at and in the time period you were born were all gifts from God. A Christian understands that, but they also know the, the natural heart. Like that heart of a little child says mine. Now, the second thing that, that motivates a Christian that's different is redemption. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8, it says this. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. That's a hard verse. In verse 13 of our focal passage, Paul is actually saying that one of the ways you know that you've experienced the grace of God is if you are sacrificially generous. Paul was actually saying that if you need to be commanded to give, you've never experienced the grace of God. If on the other hand, like, if on the other hand, you want to give generously, radically, if your attitude towards your possessions uh, has, has been mildly changed, that is one of the few proofs you have that you have really experienced the grace of God. You know, you're in love with someone when you want to give them everything. In our day and time, when somebody is worried about their stuff as they prepare to enter marriage, uh, and, and something goes wrong, they, they sign this thing called a, a prenup. Now, I'm not going to say whether that's wise or not wise, but what I do know is that's not the language of a heart that's in love. When you're in a warm, passionate embrace, you know uh, what you want to say. You say, I'm yours and everything I have is yours. I'm not guarding anything of mine from you, not my heart, not my possessions. I remember when Trisha and I got to that point where we were serious and I told her, I said, Trisha, if there's any possession, any account, any password that I can't share with you, then you're not the one. When Trisha and I were dating, I, I made a post coming in this. The, the truck I drive right now uh, doesn't have power locks, doesn't have. Only new. But when we were dating, Trisha drove. I said, if the person I'm about to vow my life to loses her life so that I could save a couple of dollars, none of the money I got in the bank would be worth it. And, and I'm going to tell you something. 
you've heard me talk about Trisha before. And I don't mean to disrespect any of y'all ladies in the room, but I don't want nobody else. I don't need to look for anybody else. For my time and my money, Trisha is the best that I could ever get. But Trisha doesn't hold a candle to a God who climbed up on the cross and gave his life for me. And if I'm willing to have open access with my heart and my things with my wife like that, how much more should they be available to the God of the universe? If there's any part of your life that you can't trust God with, then he's not your one. Here's how you know whether you have a love relationship based on an experience of grace with with Christ or whether you have a formal, legalistic, moralistic relationship with Christ, thinking that because you've done your best, he owes you. A person who has a relationship based on grace says, I owe you everything. Everything is yours. My attitude toward every bit of my possessions has changed. A person who has experienced um, just believing a set of beliefs says that God owes me. I've worked pretty hard. I've, I've done my best. I've been a good person. See the difference? The difference, it, 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 there's a reason why Paul can go as far as use the word prove yourself with sacrificial generosity. I understand that there are probably, there, there's, there's probably people in this room that don't know where they stand with Jesus and I want you to know that, that we want you here, that Jesus wants you here, that I want you here. Jesus said that he's a physician, that he didn't come here for the well, but he needs the sick. He, he came here for the people now who are spiritually solid, but he wants the people who don't know where they stand to be here. He, he wants to minister to you. He wants you here. He's a physician. Here's how you can help diagnose yourself. The way you can diagnose yourself is, is by answering this question, do you find sacrificial generosity making sense? If he is the God that he claims to be, if he is giving himself to you, if he was hung on the cross to pay your debt, if he now lives spiritually in you, and if he's not just your helper, but he's your savior and your Lord, somebody who did everything for you, he's your goodness and you're his punishment, don't you see that they'll change your attitude towards everything else? When you see what he's done for you, it changes your attitude towards all your possessions. Has that happened to you yet? If that hasn't happened, then you haven't been touched by grace. So keep on, keep moving toward that. If the things I'm saying now are about to say here in conclusion don't make any sense to you, don't worry about the money thing for the time being. Worry about getting your relationship straight with Jesus first. If your relationship with him gets straight, then if that gets straight, then there'll be no problem with being sacrificially generous. If you find a lot of trouble with that, then before I go to my seat today, before I take my seat at the end of this time, I'm, I'm going to say a prayer of thanksgiving. No special words, no special order of words, just a prayer of thanks that allows you to confess Jesus as both Savior and Lord. I'm going to give you an opportunity to believe and confess that, that because he hung, died, and bled for you, because he was raised on that third day morning, that you have an opportunity to have a relationship with the God of the universe. If you have not gotten that straight, then do it today. So I know some of you are saying, yeah, y'all, John, all that sounds good. But you still haven't mentioned yet how much we should give. Once again, verse 13 says that 
that your obedience was in relation to the good news of Christ. Let me explain. Now, in, in the Old Testament, all believers are required to give one-tenth of their income to the poor. That, that's, in other words, that's 10% not for you, for other people. When you come to the New Testament, there's no place where the tithe is directly commanded. Now, before you give that Tiger Woods fist pump, I need you to understand what Paul is saying here. Because you might, you might just curse Paul here in a second. What Paul says is, think about the gospel. Are people living in, in, in the New Testament who know Christ more blessed or less blessed than the people in the Old Testament? Are you more indebted to God or less indebted to God? The only unavoidable conclusion is, is, is the Bible gives you a reasonable way to understand whether or not you are a sinner saved by grace. And, and he says, if you look at 10 percent and you realize the Bible says that that is a minimum, a minimum rule of thumb for how much you should be giving away, a person who's a moralist or a legalist would say that's ridiculous. A person who has been touched by the grace of God, who owes everything to Christ, what you might say is, I'm strapped. I can't do it. I'm in too much debt. I have obligations. I'm in trouble. I can't make it. But you'll never say that it's ridiculous. Never. Because you'll look at the sacrifice that Christ made for you and you'll say, that, that, that's nowhere ridiculous. You just don't say that. If 10% is unreasonable to the one who's giving you everything, you don't know him. If it's, if it's reasonable, but you don't know how you're going to get there, that's different. That's very different. Some of you can get there. Some of you say, you know, I can't afford 10%, but here's the way to look at it. If you had an immediate 10% reduction in your income, what would you do? You would make it. Now, you would be and you would be grumpy, but you would make it. Make do now. Only instead of the unhappiness of feeling like you don't have it, make do now, but take that money with the joy of knowing that you didn't. You say if we had a 10% reduction in income, we would be unhappy with some of the things that we had to get do away with, but we can make it. It would be painful, but we could make it. I'm going to tell you a story, and I need to preface this story by saying I'm not trying to make you look at me in a certain way. But I read a statistic when I was going through seminary that said like 80% of people who finish seminary never go into ministry. Now, they just spent four years or more taking special classes, spending money, getting people to support them so they can go and learn more about scriptures, and then they never go into ministry. What do you think the number one reason? They have debt. So I said, you know what? I'm so I need to get all my debt paid off before I finish seminary. And I had to cut all this different stuff. I had no cable. I had none of this stuff. And I was working. I had two cars at the time. I sold one and kept my, my, my beat up pickup truck that I bought at a car auction. That back window leaked. where there was no anchors that kept me from saying yes to God. 
that you're willing to say, I'm willing to give up all this other stuff to be able to say yes to God? Has he done anything in your life? Were you willing to say, I'm willing to go without this if it means that I get to go and say yes to him? Has he transformed your, your heart in, in any kind of way? Were you willing to say that it's okay for me to go about this right now so I can say yes to him? Has he touched your life in any kind of way? Has he transformed you in some kind of way that you didn't think was possible? That you can only look, I should have been dead. You saw that picture. I was 616 pounds. I should have been in the ground. Has he done anything for you? Now, why would I give him my all? You can make do with the joy of knowing that you have suddenly become sacrificially generous to be able to change the world and impact the world that we've always been talking about since we started. There are a lot of you who just can't make it because it'll take you some time because you're boxed in because maybe for today you're learning about sacrificial generosity for the first time in your life. And that's okay. You're saying it's going to be a while, but here's the deal. Get in that direction. Make a plan. Give till it's scary. Pray and say, God, I want to get there. Give to the point that it makes you scared. Be gutsy, but move toward it. In Malachi 3, God says this. He says, put me to the test. Dare to give in the proportions that I am talking about. Dare, and I promise you that I'll put a blessing, I'll put something in your hand. Now, what is that blessing that he's talking about? We don't know. Is it money? Sometimes. So, but, but blessing means so much more than that. And I can tell you uh, from personal experience that, that in some of your cases, that the, the primary blessing you'll get is that you'll be able to stop worrying about money for the first time. That you won't be able to stop worrying about money until you're able to give in the proportions that he is saying. That's the first blessing that you'll get from sacrificial generosity. Some of us are eating up with worry, and it's not until we begin to obey this text that we'll ever get security. God says, I want to put something in your hand, but, but I can't put it into a clenched fist. Your fists are clenched tight around your possessions, afraid you're going to lose them. Open your hands and I can put something into them. Look at what happened to Jesus when he opened up his hands. Look at what happened to Jesus when he gave up his wealth. Open up your hands and you won't be able to imagine what I'm going to put down into your heart. But I need you to open up your hands. When will you finally let go? Let go. Fellowship, high Chris, let's change the world. Let's, let's change our lives. Let's open our hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a look at what it means to be sacrificially generous. So many times we, when we start to consider... Um, our generosity of our time, of our talents, of our financial resources. It's a sticky subject. And, and 
and our hearts naturally reject. Because we don't always think about the sacrifice that you made for us. We don't think about the commitment that you've made for us. Father, if there's someone here that, that for the first time today, they, they heard about the sacrifice you made in sending your son to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we couldn't die, all so that we could have eternity with you. Father, I pray that they would trust him, that they would believe and confess. And, and, and because of the love shown to them, it would transform their heart to view their possessions differently. Father, if there's any one of us in this room today that, that, that calls ourselves a follower of your son, who's been operating under a prenup with you, who said, God, you can have all of me except for my stuff. I pray today would, would, would be the change, that your Holy Spirit would move, and that we will become a group of people who are radically, sacrificially generous that the same letter that was written back then about who Christians were would be the case for us today. And that we would see people come to know you as a result. We pray these things in our darling son Jesus' name. Amen.